Hi, it's Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. This week, I'm in conversation with Leslie Todaro. Leslie is the co-founder of the Hollowell Todaro ADHD Center. In my experience, ADHD continues to be widely misunderstood. And I wanted to spend time with someone who really understands both the beauty and challenges of ADHD. I so appreciate Leslie sharing her incredible expertise with us in this conversation. Just a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any questions for us, you can find us on our site at traumastewardship.com and on Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. Today, I have the great joy of being in conversation with Leslie Todaro. Leslie, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So let's catch listeners up to the work you do, where you're based, and a little bit of your history. And then I've got a number of questions for you. Okay. I specialize uh, in helping people with ADHD of any age. And I got there because members of my family have ADHD and I wanted to know more about it uh, and develop an expertise. So I trained with a psychiatrist named Dr. Hallowell, who means nothing to someone outside of the ADHD world, but inside the ADHD world, he's monumentally changed the way people look at ADHD. He has ADHD himself as well as dyslexia, but managed to get through Harvard and medical school and do his residency at Harvard in spite of the fact that he can't take medication. But the important thing about Dr. Hallowell is 30 years ago, he was like, hey, wait a minute, ADHD is not a disorder. It's a trait that can actually be used in so many ways to create so much success. And people are are looking at it as if it's this terrible thing, and it's not. And so for every negative, I can give you a positive. And yes, ADHD can be challenging. I always tell clients, students, that school is the worst time. Schools are not built for kids who are, you know, in any way neurodiverse. And so they can really struggle. But if you look at all the people in the world who inventors, entrepreneurs, musicians, you name it, they all have ADHD. And they thank their ADHD for their success. So Dr. Hallowell's entire teaching is about the strength of ADHD, even though it can feel so frustrating and people can feel so many negative ways about themselves. So after training with him, he asked me if I would partner with him. He has two centers, one in Boston, one in New York, to which I said, no, I didn't want to work this hard. And I, that wasn't my intention. Uh, But people with ADHD are incredibly charming, and um, it's hard to say no to them for a long period of time. So after about two years, I said yes, and we opened in the greater Seattle area, Seattle and Kirkland. During COVID, we moved all our offices into one in Seattle near U Village. And then we have a center in Palo Alto and one in San Francisco. Uh, so anyway, about 10 years ago, we started and here we are. (laughs) Thank you so much. I, in my experience, ADHD, I mean, it's not a competition. I feel like it is extremely misunderstood by so many people. So I was going to say, I feel like it's one of the 
many things that folks have going on or love or care about somebody who has it going on. And it's so misunderstood, but again, not a competition. So can you help us understand why is it so misunderstood? And what do you think folks who aren't fluent in the ways of ADHD get wrong? What don't we understand about it? What people get wrong a lot of the time is that you can try harder. You can work harder. You're being lazy. People start to feel as if they're not smart. There are many misconceptions, but it's like asking someone to take off their glasses and see, and just asking them to squint harder, which of course isn't going to be successful. And so it feels deliberate to so many people. You know, I didn't remember, I lost it. I, you know, whatever may come up and it isn't, it's, it's really just the truth but it's so often misunderstood. What people think of a lot is, you know, the little boy who can't stop moving or bouncing off the walls in class or tapping his foot or, you know, something making more trouble than that. And then those kids not being understood, not given the proper tools to be able to sit still or not sit still. The younger that you, that you can catch it, the better off, you're going to be because the the negative self-talk doesn't have a chance to sink in yet. You know, by the time you're an adult and you haven't been diagnosed, you know, that's the, the self-talk is incredibly sad and doesn't have to be there. And when people find out that they have ADHD and that's what's sort of been holding life back, um, you know, it's, it's an adjustment and it's a process and it, there's a period of mourning as to like, if I'd only known. So I think that those are the misconceptions. Also, girls and women especially are the most underdiagnosed population because quite often girls aren't wiggly and they're not acting out in class and they're not being loud. They're daydreaming and they're looking off, just not listening. And so it's not caught. It's also not caught because people with ADHD tend to be quite smart. And so they can, you know, sort of power their way through for a period of time. And that period of time is different for everybody. But um, there's an implosion at some point where the stakes are higher. There's too much to do. They're overwhelmed and their straight A's become straight D's Mm. and they don't understand why. Mm -hmm. Let's pull the lens back a bit. Causes for ADHD. So ADHD is genetic. It's the most heritable, I don't even want to call it a mental health trait because it's not, but it's the most heritable trait of of all of them. Trauma can exacerbate ADHD traits or, you know, I, I sort of like to say turn it on earlier or more severely than one might see it if there's trauma in somebody's life. Things that can mimic ADHD, things like celiac, thyroid issues, PANDA, which is a neurological issue with kids that goes undiagnosed or untreated frequently. There are a number of things, lead poisoning, that can show up like ADHD and may not be. And so, you you know, when you do a history, which is how you evaluate someone in the first place, those medical questions are really important. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
Is it more common now or is it one of the many things that it's not more common? We just understand it and folks are more willing to talk about it now. I think it's the second thing you said. It's definitely not more common. I think it's, you know, more readily accepted. It's pointed out differently than it was in the past. Teachers can't diagnose a child, but they certainly can flag a child that they think is having trouble. So, you know, I think it's both overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed. And that, you know, I think the stats are that 12% of the population likely has ADHD, but it's likely much higher than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the distinction between ADD and ADHD, are those the primary two distinctions or are there more, more in there? So years ago, ADD was ADHD without the H, right? So it was inattentive type. It was someone who wasn't wiggly, somebody who had other traits. But now everything is ADHD. There are just three types. There's inattentive type, which again, doesn't have hyperactivity attached to it. There's hyperactive type, which is, I, I think I've seen once, someone who's just got the hyperactive piece. And then there's a combined type, which means you have both together, which is probably the most common. Okay. And the reason that you're, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of it's overdiagnosed and, and it's underdiagnosed, we just have like many, many things societally. We have more of an understanding of it. So more folks are understanding it. More folks are willing to talk about it. There's less isolation around it, but there's no reason to believe that there's there's more of it. It's just now we're talking about it more. We're understanding it more and there's more support around it. At least most places there's more support yes. around it. Is that and right? the, you know, there's less stigma around it. Um, of course, in certain cultures, there's still an enormous stigma. And so that can be very difficult. But yeah, people are are talking about it more. Uh uh And can you describe to us a bit about, I do think there remains, like you're saying, some stereotypes around it for, again, for folks we're talking about, folks who are not fluent in this. From the outside, I think there are folks who have some stereotypes around it and just some rigidity in how it's thought about. Can you paint us a picture of the various ways it looks. Sure. I mean, it, it, the obvious ways are, you know, difficulty concentrating, difficulty paying attention, you know, having to be told something multiple times before you actually start to focus and tune into that someone's talking to you. There's a twinkle and a charm about people with ADHD that you see all the time. And it's one of the big questions pe- parents will ask, you know, if, and medication is not the only way to treat ADHD, but if, it, if they choose to put their child on medication, they're always afraid that the kid will lose their spark. And the answer is no, you should never lose that spark uh, if, if you have, you're not medicated properly. But it shows up, my favorite, my favorite ADHD trait, I don't have ADHD, and for this reason, I totally wish I did, is curiosity. People with ADHD the amount of knowledge they seek and retain is incredible. You know, and they'll go to the computer to look one thing up and in three hours, they know the entire lineage of the English monarchy. They just go off in these different areas and know just random stuff, but interesting stuff. They're incredibly interesting people. The negative hallmarks, again, are someone who's disruptive or acts out in a way that's impulsive and can get them into trouble. People with ADHD get more speeding tickets. They have more 
driving accidents that, you know, that, I mean, that's just a fact, but people will say, don't we all have pieces of ADHD? I don't have an ADHD bone in my body. I wish I did, but I don't. And yes, of course, every, people have a little bit of lots of things, but when it affects your life and your relationships, it's a problem and needs to be looked at differently than don't we all have these struggles. Mm -hmm. You know, people with ADHD can learn to compensate for some of the things that are hard for them to the point where they won't meet what's called the DSM criteria when they're older because they've compensated their way through life. But if you say to them, talk to me as a middle schooler, you'll then hear, you know, how hard everything was and how many fights they got in with their parents about their homework and they just couldn't sit and do it. And they had so many missing assignments and they lost everything. And, and so a lot of people with ADHD are shamed for their behavior and I always tell my clients the biggest trick is learning to laugh, mm. like laugh with it. You know, you know, when my son leaves a trail of popcorn through the house and he's practically grown now, he'll always say, how'd you know it was me? <laughs> well, you know, it's just always you like, and that's fine. You know, it doesn't matter. It's just popcorn. Right. But the more of a sense of humor you can have, not laughing at somebody, but right. you know, laughing with somebody just about some of the silly things they do you take the toxicity out of it and it's, it, it becomes really fun. People with ADHD are super fun. Talk to us a little bit about that spark. So what is the spark? The curiosity is the spark. I know you mentioned earlier, one can be very charming. What is that spark? What do you attribute that to? I think that I would attribute it to their curiosity and sort of zest for life if allowed to play it through. It's like Dr. Hallowell likes to say, you know, and I know he's taboo now, but of course, Christopher Columbus had ADHD. Who sets off in a boat on something that's supposedly flat where he's purportedly going to fall off the edge, except somebody with ADHD. And you can cite so many people like that. And people with ADHD, you know, it's not like people say to themselves, oh, I'm going to have a great idea now. But people with ADHD sort of do. They sort of come to something incredibly interesting, fascinating, Nobel Prize winning in five minutes because there's just sort of this, you know, one step further into looking at things, one step deeper into looking for, at things than, than I think the average population when you're talking about this, I think about Malcolm Gladwell. I don't think it is his term, but the term he talks about quite a bit, desirable difficulties, mm -hmm. which he talks about in terms of, you know, in some of his writings, he's talked about the number of folks who are in leadership positions who have lost a parent when they're young, mm -hmm. or certainly dyslexia, for example. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he talks about that whole concept of desirable difficulties. And that sounds like some of what you're talking about, that if it doesn't crush you, and if you can transform it and harness it. And like you're saying, learn to work with it can really be tremendous. Oh, I mean, the world is at your feet if you can learn to live with it and, you know, even accept some of the quirkiness that comes along with it, the quirkiness in a fun way, you know, because like I said, people with ADHD are incredibly fun. They're silly. You know, if they're led to be themselves, I always say that I treat a lot of couples and ADHD finds anxiety because 
someone who's anxious likes their world controlled and they meet someone with ADHD who's spontaneous and fun and interesting and all of these things. And the person with ADHD is like, oh my God, your world is so controlled. I love it. I need that structure. Unfortunately, about four years into the relationship, the courtship gets a little more difficult and then the work starts. But that's the most common matchup I see. So interesting. For folks interested in neuroscience, the brain, going down that path, what do we know now that maybe we didn't know before about, I hear what you're saying in terms of we inherit it. What do we know about what's going on in the brain from a neuroscience perspective with ADHD? So people with ADHD produce less dopamine and norepinephrine. And I think we've all heard the term dopamine hit, you know, so you love doing something and, and your dopamine rises and, and you're really into it and involved. And so someone with ADHD, when they love something, their dopamine and norepinephrine start to be stimulated and they transmit more of it. And so they are really engaged. They're what we call hyper-focused, you know, so a parent will say yesterday he could do this and today he won't. Well, yesterday it was new, interesting and exciting and dopamine started to surge and it was great. Today it's boring. And that's actually what's behind medication. People have a hard time understanding why you would give a stimulant to someone who can't stop moving. But for someone with ADHD, what it stimulates is that it increases the amount of dopamine and norepinephrine in your system. So it basically brings you to baseline. It brings you to you know where someone without ADHD is. And that's, that's where the stimulant piece comes in. And I think people have a hard time understanding that it's mm-hmm. chemical. Mm-hmm. So can you say a little bit more about that? One doesn't produce as much dopamine. And so that then can cause the losing interest piece yes. quickly. And Lack then motivation. All okay. Okay. And then what else behavior wise does one do to compensate for not producing those as much? What else would you find folks doing? You know, people come up with, hopefully they come up with different ways of getting around the have to's, you know, they either make it more fun for themselves or they play a game with themselves to remember it. Or, you know, there, there are all kinds of things people will do to try to make sure that what we call executive functions are alive and well, and the executive functions of are held in the frontal lobe of the brain And that's the last part of the brain to develop and close. And so for people with ADHD, the frontal lobe closes at a 30% slower rate. It doesn't mean, it has nothing to do with intelligence um, at all. It just has to do with planning, time management, all of these things that, that executive function, it's like the frontal lobe is like the CEO of your brain. So a, a parent will say by... 12, he should be doing these things. A, you need to let go of the shoulds because there are none. They're not predictable and we can't, you know, the expectation piece makes our relationship with our loved one so difficult. So, you know, what I'll say is he's not 12, he's nine. So let's first understand that. And second of all, what matters is your relationship and that you have calm and connection with your son or daughter 
And so always bickering or fighting about picking things up or they should be doing this or they should be doing that really just makes your relationship tense and hard when really what the focus should be is how connected is your child to you or your partner so that they trust that you can help them through these difficult times and not shame them through these times. Parents don't mean to, they don't know. You know, if you don't understand, you don't understand. You know, you can't be expected to. But once you can learn about it and understand sort of the magic to the person that you love instead of the deficit, your whole world changes. Mm-hmm. And with that difference in norepinephrine and dopamine production, is there a connection there with adrenaline and seeking high risk, yeah. high reward behaviors? Yes. So that, you know, goes along with the dopamine rush, right? Is, you know, people with ADHD can be incredibly impulsive. Do not think about step two. Step one is all that matters. And step two can get them in a lot of trouble. So you have to watch impulsivity and, you know, be both concerned and teach whoever it is that you're dealing with to think about things before they do them if they can. As they get older, it gets better. But, you know, I could I could tell you more stories about things my son has done that are both frightening and, you know, the most ridiculous one is he found white spray paint and painted his name on our house. And again said, how'd you know it was me? No malice intended. He just thought it was fun to spray the paint. You know, so some of those impulses as teenagers um, can become really dangerous. You know, people with ADHD are 10 times more likely to have trouble with substances, 10 times more likely to have trouble with addiction. So, you know, there's a lot of education that has to go on. And then if they're not properly treated, they they do tend to self-medicate. You know, weed is the number one drug of choice because it calms their brains down. It helps them relax because it's really hard to shut their brains off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As you're talking, I just I just keep having an image of the ADHD, you know, in partnership with the adolescent brain, which, you know, we're, we don't know everything about, but we know much more about and how it goes until age 25 and just all the massive amount of construction. And it makes, I, I teach a lot on decision fatigue and cognitive overload. And I talk a lot about how much harder that is, of course, for folks in their adolescence, you know, up to their mid twenties with everything we know about decision fatigue and cognitive overload in the brain and everything we know about the adolescent brain. And with what you're sharing, it makes me think a lot about that in terms of just those layers and how, I mean, adolescence anyway, rough (laughs) to get through. And with ADHD, it's just like, I mean, headwind after headwind after headwind. So you must see a lot of, a lot of suffering and certainly folks who don't have resources, aren't blessed enough to work with you or get support from your center or other centers or have folks in their life who are compassionate and understanding I, I mean, again, adolescence anyway, so hard. And then to not have proper support and scaffolding around this um, must be just absolutely brutal. It, you know, it, it is, it is brutal. Um, and it depends how it's channeled, you know, and I, I wish more than anything, people who can't see us could see us. What we do to try to compensate for that a little is we have a lot of webinars and courses online that are very inexpensive 
and that you can learn a lot from. We also do a lot of professional development. We do as much as we can with teachers to help them be, you know, the one that brings all the goodness in the child out, you know, and then you have some kids who turn to sports and someone will probably yell at me for saying this, but I would bet you half the athletes have professional athletes have ADHD and they're happy that they have it because it's what's given them their gift. Right. Uh, right. So it's a matter of, for anyone, finding a passion. Kids with ADHD go from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, and it can be super annoying. But the truth is, I always urge people, just let them go. Because once they find a passion, life changes so much. Mm. They have a reason to do stuff every day. And they get so passionate about their passions, that um, they become the experts in their fields. They become Mm -hmm. all of those things. So if they can't get real help, understanding how to sort of guide it can be helpful as well. Right. And you've, you've referenced a couple of things, Leslie, let's, let's break it down a little bit. So for someone who is navigating their own ADHD, what are the things that you share with them that you find to be most impactful? To be kind to themselves, to understand that, that everyone's brain is wired differently and theirs is wired in this particular way and these particular things are difficult, but I can guarantee that there are things that aren't difficult for them that are for others. And I, I think that's the biggest is to not go down that path of I'm so dumb, I'm so stupid, I'm so lazy, I'm so all of these things, because they're none of those things. And that would be my one piece of advice. And to explore their strengths, to, to don't be afraid to go out there and, and see, even if it's the silliest thing, what you may love in life or about life. Perfect. Let's talk about what you share with loved ones. So aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents, siblings, kids, <laughs> roommates, for folks who do not have ADHD and they love and adore someone, some folks with ADHD, what do you share with those folks? I tell them to try and be kind. People with ADHD, unfortunately, have a very low level of being able to take criticism. They've been likely criticized for much of their lives. Do better, try harder, go faster, whatever it is. And so they easily personalize so many things you say. And it's it's because it's part of their muscle memory. You know, it's just who they are. And so they become defensive and they fight back and, you know, it ends up hurting the relationship. So I tell people to try and have compassion because it's not easy to always have ADHD. And I ask the person with ADHD to try to have compassion for the person who doesn't have ADHD because it can be difficult at times to, to navigate life when you know one of you is forgetting a lot, the other one is over-functioning, and you see that all the time. So I try to push compassion and kindness because... All anyone wants is for someone to be kind to them, but especially someone with ADHD who's been put down for so much of their life. If you're kind, the, you know, the world is yours. And it's hard because it's frustrating. 
It's really frustrating. The other thing is that depression and anxiety go along with ADHD quite often. ADHD rarely lives alone. So it either, you know, comes with something like dyslexia or dysgraphia, or people get super anxious because they can't do the things they're supposed to do. And then they get super depressed because they don't do them as well as they would like, or they, they don't do them at all. And so you have to tease out what's running what. And so treating the ADHD first, if you have someone with that triad of symptoms, is usually the way to go because it's the easiest and fastest thing to sort of see if you can make a difference. And then it informs you as to whether the depression and anxiety is a subset of the ADHD or if someone has developed an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder of some kind, you can start to pull them apart and you know treat each one as as needed but quite often if you treat someone with ADHD depression and anxiety can can sort of melt away because they're no longer in that one down position that they were in before right and what do you advise let's talk about learning environments you brought this up earlier so what do you advise for teachers and aides and principals and coaches and folks in a school environment, how do you advise them when they, let's say, let's say you have someone who's very compassionate, super empathetic, really loving, and they're in a really, really, really problematic education system, which at least I'm I'm not going to talk for other countries, but in the United States, our education system, very problematic in so many ways, very compromised. What do you share with those folks? Well, we work really hard at trying to get individualized learning plans in both the public and private schools. It is your right. People should know and read the Disabilities Act. ADHD is not a disability, but it is covered under the under the Disabilities Act. And schools are mandated by law to accommodate your learning needs, whatever they may be. And so there's something called a 504, which is sort of less involved than an individual learning plan, but either one will work. But unfortunately, you know, fighting a school is where parents find themselves. Schools will say, he has straight A's, he doesn't need an IEP. Well, that's against the law. It doesn't matter what their grades are. He may be taking 10 hours a night to get those straight A's where it really should take an hour. So, you know, don't ever let anybody tell you that, you know, you're not eligible because of X without checking it out. And with accommodations, kids can do really well. You know, they get they get extra time on things. They sometimes have less homework. They, you know, it can be very teacher dependent. You also want to teach your child to advocate for themselves. As they get older, they should always have a copy of their learning plan with them. They should make sure at the beginning of each year or the parent should make sure that every teacher has a copy of the learning plan. And then the child needs to make sure that the learning plan is followed. Obviously, if if they're young, their parent has to make sure. But when followed, it makes it so much easier to not be under that stress and pressure. People will say, I don't want to use accommodations. It's a crutch. You know, I shouldn't have to use that. Well, you go back to the glasses analogy, then take your glasses off and tell me how you can see. You know, we're just bringing you up to base level. We're bringing you to where the game is now fair. You're not working at a deficit. 
And that takes time for some people to really navigate and understand. But that's the advice I give to parents and to kids. And people ask, you know, all the time, what school is best? And of course, not everyone can afford private school. And honestly, not all private schools are perfect for ADHD. You know, really high competitive academic environments can be really hard. You know, nothing to do with you not being smart enough to do the work. It's just that the work is so abundant that, you know, it's going to take you a really long time. And then you're competing against all these type A other really competitive people. So that's not always perfect. It's nice to have a school that has a study hall or a learning club or some kind of learning support. And more and more of them are. You just have to ask questions and find out what's available. Mm-hmm. And what about workplaces, Leslie? What do you advise for coworkers, colleagues, bosses, supervisors? I know that's another place where things can get really challenging. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are times that I advise people not to tell their boss. There are companies that have weaponized it. And it's something private about you. Uh, that you will choose to share or not. I don't tell them because they should be embarrassed or they in any way shouldn't be proud to have ADHD, but you don't know who you're talking to. And some of the bigger companies now make space or for people with ADHD or any, any other type of uh, difference that they may have and will give them hopefully a, you know, a, cubicle to themselves or they can wear headphones so they're not distracted because there are things in the workplace that really help. And so to not be able to do that and really try to pound away at your work can be really hard. So, you know, it's know your environment, know your people, of course, disclose it. You're covered again under the disability, I mean, disabilities act at work as well. But unfortunately, there are still people who don't understand it well enough. And I fear sometimes that it will be weaponized. Yeah, right. One of the things that I've seen with loved ones and friends and folks I work with is how how frequently people will talk about this whole just cycle of what you need to do sometimes to be able to live with it, work with it, and, you know, have like a healthy relationship with it means you have to do certain things. And part of what's hard about ADHD sometimes is doing those certain things. And that's where, now this isn't uncommon. I mean, this is, we could say similar things about handling one's depression and one's anxiety and any number of things. It's just, I think with ADHD, it is where I have heard so many folks talk about that anguish of being at that place of like, I know I need to do this, but the whole reason I need to do this is because I actually can't do this. So how do you work with folks around that? I imagine that is one of the primary things that folks really grapple with. They do. Um, And again, shame attaches itself to that as well. I try to get people to focus on something very small first and try to find success in that small thing. And collaborating as to what that should be is really important. You know, to have it imposed on you instantly makes someone with ADHD, you know, back up. There can be some defiance 
you know, people with ADHD tend to be more afraid to take on tasks that they're not sure they're good at. And so they'll shy away from them or say, no, I'm not doing it. And the real reason is they're scared. So collaborating as to, you know, what do you think you can do? Start with, you know, could you remember every Wednesday to take the garbage out? Maybe not. Like you may go through maybe many Wednesdays where the garbage doesn't go out. But you can change neural pathways. The brain is, is elastic and constantly changing. And so what's just so amazing to see, and I'm sure my son will probably kill me, but seeing it in my own child, you know, who started on medication when he was seven, and he's now a 4-0 straight AP student without medication. Because through the years of coaching and learning how to navigate his schoolwork, and it became something that just was easier for him to do, or he understood what he needed to do for himself to make it easier. And he's, you know, incredibly smart. And so he finds himself now in a place where he can do these things. Does he still forget lots of stuff? Absolutely. But, you know, that's part of his charm. You know, it's just who he is. Dr. Hallowell will tell you that people with ADHD are more attractive than other people. He likes saying that because he has ADHD. Um, but he tells people that all the time, that they're the beautiful people of the world. But just start small. And with your child, definitely collaborate. You know, can you put the, your, the clothes in the hamper instead of next to the hamper? And anyone listening who has a child with ADHD knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because, you know, it's next to the hamper every night. And, you know, again, compassion comes in. Like, it's not going to be even in terms of, you know, weighing it out. You know, you do half and I do half. You really just have to explore what the skills are of the ADHD person. Maybe they love to cook. Find something that, that you know jazzes them so it will be easier for them to be successful. Right. Let me ask you this, Leslie. So take this in the spirit in which I'm, I'm offering it, that one of the things I see a lot of relationships struggle with is someone who has self-awareness about what they have going on. And I think every human has the capacity for this to have self-awareness and also knowingly or unknowingly use that as an excuse in ways that sometimes are not constructive. And so that can be happening. And then it can also be that somebody is not using it as an excuse at all. They're very aware of it. They're articulate about it. And then folks around them feel any number of things, including frustration, aggravation, irritation, because they feel like the person is using it as an excuse. So I do trauma work. I've done it a long time. My daughters have a wonderful sense of humor about what a catastrophic thinker I am. And I try to be accountable about that. And I try to always work on my own impulse control around like having the catastrophic thoughts, but not, you know, ruining their lives by telling them every way that death and destruction can be there. And recently my daughter was sharing something that she was experiencing. And I was like, well, sweetie, where does that come from? And she said, respectfully, that comes from you. <laughs> and it was just this moment of like, oh my God, <laughs> the worst. And so you can have this awareness about it, right? And I shouldn't ever get to use the fact that I do trauma work and I'm a catastrophic thinker as an excuse for that. It's that 
razor's edge of this is context, right? This is why sometimes I'm out of my mind as a parent and I shouldn't use that as an excuse, right? So can you talk with us a little bit about that? It's not an excuse. It's an explanation. That's how I try to move that conversation, but it is an explanation. And so with that, you know, requires some conversation and understanding where both sides can feel, you know, sort of heard. Because it is true. Someone's ADHD does do blah, blah, blah. You know, that is why they're behaving in that way. That way may not be acceptable. But that doesn't mean that they're just going to put stop doing it because you tell them to, because they can't. Uh, It doesn't mean you have to accept it, but it does mean that there has to be a conversation around it. So it's explained, it's explained why it's uncomfortable and it's explained why it's difficult not to. You know, siblings of kids with ADHD, typically the one with ADHD takes up all the air in the room. They frequently hijack the house because it's their homework, it's their dinner, it's their shoes, their mess, it's their, and you could just keep going. And the other child is, is, doesn't get anywhere near that amount of attention, even if it's negative. And so that relationship can be super hard. And it's something for parents to be aware of. You can't necessarily fix it. What you can do is explain to the non-ADHD child that they may have more freedom, they may have they may be more independent. You may allow them to do more things at a younger age because they're able to handle them in a responsible way. And that's what that's their gift. But someone with ADHD requires more attention. But it's important that parents notice that the ADHD child's hijacking the room and explain, you know, again, why that needs to back off and how and, you know, what mechanism can they use to help the child calm down or, you know, feel comfortable in their own skin? Because regulation, social and emotional regulation are one of the toughest things for someone with ADHD. Mm -hmm. So building on what you're saying, explanation, not an excuse. How then do you advise relationships of all kind to calibrate that with I was struck by what you said earlier where you're like, whatever, it's just popcorn. So you enlightened vibe about like, okay, it's popcorn. It's popcorn throughout my house. There could be folks who have an experience of like, we're not doing popcorn throughout the house. Like that's not what we're doing. And so how, you know, that's one example, of course, but how do you work with folks in relationships of like, Hey, totally appreciate you have this going on. Nevertheless, here's what we need as a family, here's what we need in the classroom. Here's what we need on your work project. Like how, how do you balance that, those conditions and then simultaneously be very honoring, respectful, and, you know, create a dignified space for the folks who is navigating this themselves. I try really hard to help people understand what's really important Um, And of course, we all value different things and, you know, expect different things. But at the end of the day, everybody wants love and connection and peace. And I'm pretty clear that you're not going to get peace if all of these things are going to be a problem. 
And so, you know, some things just have to be. And it takes a lot of, you know, patience and change. And and I think when people start to see relationships change as a result of acceptance and lack of expectations, they see the beauty of it. But otherwise, you know, reward doesn't work. Punishment doesn't work. So, you know, what's going to work is being able to connect to somebody in a way where they want to try it for you out of respect for you. And I mean, it may be really hard and they may not be able to do it. Doesn't mean they don't respect you, but they're willing to hear you and do the best they can. And so I think that when everyone can get to a place where they feel as if they're doing the best they can, you have to let go of a lot. It's not easy. Like this is not an easy journey in that way. There's a lot of letting go that has to happen. But it's also very freeing because you end up not being tied to these have-tos all the time or these shoulds or these, you know, it's like people would say, take away the kid's pacifier now. And then someone else would say, well, they're not going to walk down the aisle with pacifier in their mouth. You know, it's kind of the same concept. You know, life will teach people you don't always have to. And so culture socializing, friends. There are many other people that we all learn from than our families. And so, you know, natural consequences, as long as they're not dangerous, are important. And so I don't have the golden egg answer other than that. And it works. People don't believe it works. And, you know, I'll have people come to me in the grocery store and say, you know, your parent coach has changed my life. Like, our house is so lovely now. And it's because no one's yelling and screaming anymore. And so I think it goes back to compassion. I think it goes back to honoring who you are and what you're bringing or not bringing to the table and vice versa and trying to find that balance. Oh, so beautiful, Leslie. Thank you. Let me ask you a little bit specific question about creating conditions and environment and medication. So many people for so long have been working, and I think many more people now are continuing to work on destigmatizing mental health and destigmatizing any number of things related to mental health. And I hope more and more there is less stigma on folks taking medication. And certainly, I think many practitioners would say, when one is taking medication, you know, you want to do that in connection with working with other folks and making sure you've got a holistic approach. I think, as you're saying with ADHD, I know a lot of parents, for example, who angst about their kids taking medication. And, you know, we've seen this, of course, similar with OCD, right? Like, as you're saying that, you know, the folks who are just like, well, just stop washing your hands and stop counting to three. And that that's not working. So often, as you've said, it needs to be a combination. But for folks who are less well-versed in this, what are some of the options to really create scaffolding and provide support for someone who is moving through ADHD? Like you, you opened with, the more things you can pile on top, the more successful you're going to be. Giving someone medication and sending them out the door Yes, it will make some things better, but 
you need to have a much more holistic approach. So there's coaching, for example, teaching a student how to organize their work, how to you know, watch what, for what's missing, how to plan ahead, how to do those things that don't come easily for people with ADHD is terrific. I'll have parents have their child be accountable to somebody more than once a week in terms of getting their work in, getting their work done. You know, if, if you can't afford coaching or a tutor, let it be a teacher, let it be a counselor at school. I urge parents to not have it be them. Then the fights begin. And I'll say, you know, leave it to everyone else. Like trust this, trust that this will, you can have your relationship with your child and we can make sure that their homework gets done. So take a step back, which is super hard. So, you know, there's coaching, there's, you know, individual therapy, if, you know, self-esteem and all kinds of, you know, self-worth and doubt have crept in, you know, therapy may be needed. We do a lot of parent coaching. Parents, you know, don't like to hear it, but they're equally responsible for their kids, you know, behaviors, both positive and negative. And quite often it's just because they don't know. There isn't a manual for how to raise a kid with X. You know, it doesn't have to be ADHD. It can be many things. And so the lack of knowledge puts them in a position where they may be doing exactly the opposite of what they need to be doing to support their child. So parent coaching can be incredibly useful. There are homework clubs, you know, at school, at other places around the city. You know, look for as many things as you can. There are support groups for kids, you know, women. Um, I mean, they're just, there are all kinds of things out there that can make people not feel alone and isolated and not different than everybody else. That's great. Thank you so much. Again, folks who get to work with you, get to work with your colleagues, get to work with other folks around the country and in other countries, that can be tremendous. And there's so many folks who don't have those opportunities. And even so, I imagine that you, Leslie, and your colleagues see a lot of things that are really, really, really hard and painful and where folks haven't had support when they ought to have had it in the way they ought to have, and that, you know, a lot of harm can have happened. So I imagine that this can feel for folks who work in the field overwhelming at any given time, whether or not you have ADHD or not. We like to share with our listeners some really practical things and give a window into our guests that they do to really help mitigate their overwhelm and help them just continue to keep on keeping on. So when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling like you're bearing witness to a lot, what do you employ for yourself? What are some non-negotiables that you turn to for your, for your own self as you show up for so many people regularly? It's going to sound trite, but self-care, taking time to make sure that I'm grounded. I have a lot of wonderful colleagues to talk to. I think connecting with other people in those times can be super helpful. And I mean, you know, you do trauma work, so you, you certainly know what this feels like. I try as hard as I can to, to always keep myself out of the equation and do the best I can for the people I'm listening to. And I think for me, 
I understand ADHD so much because I live with it every day that I have a lot of room for it. It would seem as if the opposite should be true, but it's not. I, I have a lot more understanding for it. So for me, I think it, I get less overwhelmed than someone honestly like what you do, which, which can be you know really horrific. But I urge people themselves who haven't had the help they should have had and have ended up in a place they don't want to be. And to understand that, you know, today's the first day, like now we know and we can help and mourning the loss of, of the time that you could have been doing something more productive is necessary, but there's so much we can still do to help you. I mean, one of the, one of the newest sort of diagnosed populations are the elderly and if they're healthy and their heart is healthy and sometimes diagnosing Dr. Hallowell's oldest patient, I think was like 85. And then he diagnosed him and this man finally wrote his book. So I don't know if that's the answer to your question, but I think not burning oneself out is top on the list. Everyone has a threshold and you need to know what that is. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Leslie. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you have many demands on your time. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And we'll link to your center. Um, and I imagine on your centers, we, we, we've been on the website. There's a lot of resources right there that folks can yes. connect with. And, and like I said, there are resources for people who can't afford services that you know are way, way less expensive. And now there are so many podcasts and so many people who have a lot to teach. Um, so I urge people to use those resources as well. Wonderful. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you for having me. Our podcast, Future Tripping, is a Trauma Stewardship Institute production. I, Laura, am your host and producer. Our incredible executive producer and sound engineer is Olivia P. Sunier, without whom this podcast would not be possible. It's edited and mixed by Tom Stiles with original music by Cameron DeVore. Our graphic designer is Evie 